They said getting started was the hardest part, but no one told you how hard it is to scale a custom service business. It's time for your team to step up, but your clients want you. Discover how to scale to seven figures and beyond by freeing up time and getting your team to run whole parts of the company so you can focus on scaling profits. This is the Hands Off CEO with Mandy Ellison. Hi, this is Mandy with Hands Off CEO Podcast. I have Kyle Rackey here on the podcast with me. Welcome, Kyle. Hi there, Mandy. Uh, thanks for having me. Glad yeah, to be here. Absolutely. Well, Kyle is the CEO of Proposify. Um, we have connected over the past years at um, conferences we were both at, and I, I think Kyle is such a great guy. Um, I, I wanted to have him on here. Um, not only is he very successful, but he is, he's run agencies in the past. He sold in his, his agency. He started it at the uh, ripe old age of 24. And um, Kyle just has been through the ups and downs of moving from um, being an agency employee, then to um, being a freelancer, and then growing into an agency, and then the agency selling. And now he has this really successful company, Proposify, where they, um, they have, well, you guys have 8,000 subscribers now? Yes, that's right. Wow, impressive. So um, welcome, Kyle. And, you know, what is one of the biggest things that you've learned through going through all of these different transitions and these different business models? Um, I mean, I've learned a ton. I think, I think one of the biggest, I guess, surprising things has been that I never... I never really wanted to be an entrepreneur or run a business. That was my, uh, I don't know, just wasn't kind of one of my dreams, I guess, as a teenager or growing up, I sort of fell into it, which I, kind of, I find talking to a lot of entrepreneurs that tends to be the same story as a lot that just were interested in something and decided to, you know, give it a try. And then when it works, you kind of, now you're stuck in the position of, okay, I guess I have to run a business now. But I, you know, I guess you never really know how, how, uh, high you can, unless you aim high, you never really know what you can achieve. So I guess the thing that I always tell people is just reach for the stars because it's like, if, if you aim too low, you end up falling short. But if you, you know, do things you never thought you could do, you, you, you surprise yourself. I never thought that I could be a freelancer when I did. And then I said, I did it. And I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess I can do that. But I can never run an agency. And then I started an agency and I was like, Oh, I guess you can do that. But could I never run a SaaS company? And so I, I found that by just trying and doing, sometimes you're amazed that you're like, wow, I didn't think I was smart enough to do this. And apparently it worked. Yeah. So um, I think that's a really great learning there that really maybe another way to phrase that is that we can really be as successful only as we believe we can be successful. Yeah. It's much more eloquent than I put it. I don't know about that, but <laughs> maybe maybe a little oversimplistic. Um, yeah. But but that's the thing that I see that um, entrepreneurs that that I talk to tend to limit themselves a lot in what their vision, and they they only set their vision just as much as they think is possible, as opposed to what may may feel like is impossible, but they're going to do it anyway. And that sounds like that's what your career has been like. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, I use fear and doubt, I guess, as a big motivator for me. So when I take on a new project or go out, like start a new company in my head, the whole time is being like, there's no way this is never going to work. But for some reason that 
kind of impels me to try harder than maybe I would have. If Now, people are wired differently. My business partner, Kevin, is the total opposite. He's one of those optimistic guys who is always thinking like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do it. I find if I thought that way, I probably wouldn't work as hard and I wouldn't. It's like the, it's like the whip cracking my back that like pushes me to do it. But that's me. Negativity motivates me more than positivity. Well, you know, and as you're saying that, maybe a, maybe a caveat of that, maybe it's not just negativity, but it is that, that you're like harnessing that energy and you're turning it into an, to excitement instead. Yeah. Yeah. I think that could, that could be the case. So be, because, um, I mean, and, and it just goes to show, I mean, you're, you said your business partner is motivated differently. You guys are wired differently and, and that's okay. And it, it works both. Um, it works you guys both work in different ways. And I think that it just goes to show that it's really important to understand what drives you and to really be constantly pushing yourself forward. Um, not from this, this place of grind it, grind it, grind it. But like, like you were, like you were, have, sh- have shared, well, um, you know, I didn't think that was possible. Now I know it's possible, but, but really from this max, from being able to maximize your potential. And it sounds like that's what you've been able to do. Yeah, so far, I mean, made, definitely made a lot of mistakes along the way, had a lot of failures, but I think overall, uh, the tra- trajectory has been uh, one of growth, which is, I think, all any of us can ever ask. Yeah, so, you know, before we push the record button, we were talking about, you know, your, your companies and hands-off growth, and um, with, with this SaaS um, SaaS agency, not sorry, not agency, but your your SaaS business, Proposify. Now you're at a place where it runs more without you, but earlier on in your agency, and that that's not that wasn't the case. So we were talking about how there were some lessons learned. So what were some of the things that you, looking back now, you would have done differently in your agency now now that you know what you know from running this other successful company. Yeah. You know, I guess, so before I, I answer that, I think it's pretty good. It's important to clarify that it's not that the company I'm in now runs itself or runs without me. It's, it's that it can. And I think there's a clear distinction there, which is, you know, I still show up to work most days, not every day. Some, you know, sometimes I work at home or, you know, I take the day off. And as an entrepreneur, it's great to have that freedom and flexibility. I think that's what we're all in it for is to basically be our, you know, be the uh, uh, author of our own journey or whatever kind of cliche we've got there. Like you want to be able to have the the freedom and flexibility to take a vacation or travel and earn as much as you want to earn. Like that freedom, I think entrepreneurs definitely care about um, even more so than money. Now that being said, I think that if you're not in your business day to day running it, um, then you're probably not maximizing the opportunity. Because I think if you just build a management team, teach them how to, you know, basically make the donuts and then say, go to town and then just take off and come back a year later to pick up your dividend check, you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table. You're probably missing a lot of really important things. And actually the business probably will crumble eventually. So I I think that it's important to basically design the machine in a way so that it can operate without you. But at the same time, you're constantly working on the machine to optimize it and make it better. And I think that's what I couldn't figure out how to do it. 
I think you summed that up so um, eloquently because this is uh, some of our past clients, what they've actually said is it's not about the four hour work week. It's about, like you said, having that, that freedom, that time and the space to be able to be gone for weeks if you want to, but also be, be able to have that space to, to optimize, like you said, to continue to make the business better. And like you said, there's so much money being left on the table otherwise. And agencies are probably the most notorious for chaining themselves to the business because they can't trust other people to do to actually work in the machine and, and operate it, right? They are the ones who have to sell all the accounts. And if, if they don't show up to work, nothing gets sold. And if they don't you know, execute the marketing strategy for their clients, they don't know anybody. Nobody works for them is better than them at what they do. So they have to be there to do it all. And that's what I would say virtually every single agency owner I've ever met, unless they're particularly good at running an agency, they all do the same thing. They chain themselves to the machine and basically they're a cog in their own machine. Yep. I've seen that too. So now looking back and what you know, how would you have run that agency differently? Um, you know, so to, to that exact same point, I was, I'm a designer by trade. That was what my background was in before I uh, started the business. So I basically in my mind, thought clients are, are hiring our agency for me to go and work on their, you know, their UX strategy or their app design or whatever it is. And I need people around me who can do all the things that I'm not as good at, like maybe project management or, or account management or that kind of thing. In hindsight, what I probably would have done is figured out how, why am I able to get results from my clients? What is it that I do? put that into a process or a system that is actually repeatable and then hire people that are even more talented than me to work within that process and, and make it so that I don't even need to think about most clients. Like I know that when they get into our agency, they're going to be taken care of. They're going to be happy. They're going to get the results and put 80% or more of my efforts into pure sales and operations until I can find a way to duplicate that and get that into a system that I can hire better people and train them on. So do you think that one of the biggest problems there was that you didn't think that was possible? I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I wasn't tracking profitability the way I should have been, you know, I should have either had a really good ops person doing that or learned how to do it. And, you know, there was just so many things that we were just kind of figuring it out as we went along and, and it was way too late that we realized, you know, this, this just isn't working where, you know, one month we might be profitable, one year we might be profitable, but mostly we were, we were chasing after invoices, dealing with the long sales cycles, um, you know, having projects run way over budget that we were eating, like just the classic stuff that people run into when they um, operate an agency. We just didn't know any better. We didn't know what we didn't know. Hmm. So, you know, you're, you were saying that one of the, the key things that you would, have been do, you would have done differently is to look at what's getting results and now how do we replicate that into a process? Yeah. So, so a, a lot of people have been successful doing that, you know, using the e-myth method like that, that talks about hamburgers and pies, right? Mm -hmm. So it works pretty well for commoditized type of, type of services. But what about for high tickets? So how, how would you have applied that now knowing what you know to hire ticket services. So actually I've got a great example and it's not myself because I wasn't able to do that, but I've seen an agency that's done that. And we probably know agencies that are able to do that. They're very rare, but they do exist. There's a company called price intelligently 
which I think they're transitioning to be called ProfitWell. Um, may, people who listen to this may not know about who they are because they're, they're much more well-known in the software-as-a-service world. But they're essentially SaaS pricing experts. So they're like, if, you're, if you run a SaaS business, pricing is a very um, challenging issue and, and nobody really does it right and nobody knows what they're doing. So these are basically the SaaS pricing experts, the, the agency that you hire to help you figure out what your pricing should be. And they do, from what I can see, they do pretty much everything right. We actually hired Price Intelligently for a year because that's their, uh, that's their model is you, you basically pay them a monthly fee for maximum a year or minimum a year, I should say, and then you can work out a retainer afterwards, which by the way, is in and of itself a massive lesson for agency owners. Don't just sell one-off projects, sell, sell a commitment and a, and a regular uh, recurring revenue. But the other, like, I could, I could talk for a while about what they do well, but essentially they have a high price service. It's like 200 K a year to work with them. Mm. And everything is put into a system. We, even though the founder, Patrick Campbell produces amazing content and their blog is great. And that's what drew me in. They had a clearly defined sales process. I went in through um, an SDR or a BDR or whatever, you know, somebody who qualified me got handed off to a sales rep you know, went through it. Like I could tell they had their sales process down, got handed off to a customer success person. You know, they brought in their analysts. They actually flew out to meet us because they're from Boston. We're in Halifax. So it's a short flight. And like the way they managed that, it was like they were making hamburgers and, and donuts, but it was a high price service. And it was, you know, a very specialized service, like analysis and research for a specific industry you could tell that there was a whole system behind it. Wow. So then they're coming to fly out to see you. So how did that impact your decision to want to work with them? I mean, that, that's kind of a big risk to come out and oh, no. they flew out after we bought oh. after we signed the agreement. Okay. So the whole sales process happened virtually before you actually met in person. Well, here, I mean, here's one of the many things they do. Well, they didn't, you know, unlike most agencies, including my own back in the day, we just relied on word of mouth and referrals. Nobody really knew who we are unless, you know, we had a client who we made happy and they told their friend and that's how we found out. We did not have a system or an engine that was, you know, driving leads into our funnel. Whereas Price Intelligently, you can tell there's clearly a mapped out marketing strategy. They produce great content, they video and written, establish themselves as thought leaders and experts. CEO and co-founder Patrick Campbell does the majority of that, but they also have other people on their team who do it. doesn't really matter if you run an agency. You as the, the head, the CEO, can be the, the guru that people look to. It doesn't mean that people need to hire you. They hire your agency. You don't have to do the work. Um, so I was, already, I was already bought by the time I reached out and entered their contact you know, for quote form. So when I got on a call with, with somebody to qualify me, I was basically like, yeah, I like shut up and take my money. And they were like, they actually still put me through the sales process. Mm. I was already sold. And they slowed down the sales process, which is a very good technique too, because a lot of times when you have someone come in that is like all rocky and ready to go, it, you, you, can, you can lose a sale because they're, they're, they're too fast. They don't really understand what they're getting into and they slowed down the sales process, which probably made you want it more. Exactly. So when they'd say, okay, what's your calendar like tomorrow? We'll get you on a call with, you know, um, you know, Lillian, and she's going to talk through, you know, in more detail what, you know, what, the, what each of those sprints looks like or whatever their exact 
reason for the call was. They always had a reason for the next call, which was another wonderful thing that they did. So that's when you, you can train your sales reps so that when they got on a call with a lead, and let's say it's an early stage lead who's just kind of looking for pricing, try to accomplish in 15 minutes, basically qualify or disqualify them. Look for reasons to disqualify them. Because if I had come to Price Intelligently and said, yeah, you know, I don't run a SaaS business, I run a e-commerce business, but I'm still looking for pricing, they would have probably said, you know what, we only work with SaaS businesses, you should probably go somewhere else, right? They had to find out that, oh, actually, I'm the CEO of a SaaS company, we struggle with pricing, we're funding, here's how many people we have. They're like, oh, yeah, check, 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 you're a perfect fit. Now we need a reason to book the next call, and it might be to talk to our more senior analyst or you know, ask you more about some other things, but we only have this 15 minute block here. So we need to accomplish what we need to accomplish and then have a reason to, to talk tomorrow. That is like great sales strategy 101. I love everything you're sharing here, Kyle. And I want to just kind of unpack it and just kind of organize these different things because you, this, this is a value bomb all over here. So um, one of the things that I'm hearing is just just how to break down a sales process and some really great tips for these. This is how you can um, be delegating this out to your team by looking at what is the end outcome we want for our sales process and what stages do we need to have happen in each step. That's brilliant. The other thing that I'm hearing you had mentioned about like as an agency, you were, you were really focused on it. Well, not focused. You didn't have really like an out a, a sales methodology, a, a process that actually attracts the new clients, you really reliant on word of mouth. And, you know, it's very difficult to say we work only with SaaS providers when you are not doing anything to attract in SaaS providers. And this company has. So um, what I hear is working for them. And this is what other agencies can do. So I, I just love this, this model that you're showing here is that they're going after one painful problem. This is a seven figure painful problem that they're solving, which is why they can charge $200,000 for their service. There's one particular type of, of client. So there's the one client they're going after one painful problem and one outcome. And the outcome is that what, what was the outcome for you guys? I mean, if, if you nail your pricing, so they, this is the thing they do really good is they show you in all of their blog posts, they almost always use the same chart, which is backed by the research that they've done. And so they, they actually show you, they go, here's the impact that, you know, just putting a dollar into a customer acquisition will, will do for your business. Now, here's what putting it into retention will do even better than acquisition. Actually, monetization has the biggest impact per dollar, per dollar spent than acquisition or retention, meaning that if you invest more in your in your monetization, your pricing, which almost nobody does, everybody throws all their money into acquisition, sometimes into retention, and then pricing is just an afterthought, you're actually going to make 12 times more than somebody who just put that dollar into those dollars into acquisition. So they show you that in their chart and they show it to you all the time as they're going through the sales process. So they're showing you right there that, okay, when we get to the pricing and you see how much it is, remember that maybe it's 200K a year but you're actually, like you said, that's a seven figure problem. If you can nail your pricing, that will have an, a bigger impact on growth than if you had to just throw that into Facebook ads. I love it. So the one, one uh, client type, one painful problem and one outcome. And that's, that is why their business model works. And yeah. such a perfect example. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that Kyle. And I learned a lot as you were, as you were sharing that too. And mm -hmm. 
that's what I, that's what I see that, that actually is a formula that we teach um, our agencies and consultancies that we work with to actually fine tune a market and um, be able to build this, this marketing process around it. So um, now, now it's really wise that you look back and you see that, that that was missing. So, you know, tell me about your journey from moving from this, you sold your agency and how did you get into this, um, this SaaS business? Why don't, actually first, why don't you tell us what your, uh, what your pr- Proposify actually does and like what is the benefit to, the, to, the, um, to your subscribers? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, we sell to companies that, mainly sales teams that send a lot of agreements or contracts or proposals and the process of doing so is chaotic and messy, which it is for, for many different sales teams. Um, people have, you know, versions of proposals in Word on Dropbox and Google Drive and everybody's using different templates. Nobody has up-to-date, you know, content or case studies or bios. And basically, we just simplify and streamline that process. And then we also offer a better end experience for your, for your leads and your customers who are signing your proposals. So instead of just opening a PDF for a Google Doc, they're getting a branded preview online that they can interact with, uh, watch videos that you create, uh, sign up, you know, use online signatures. So we kind of make that end-to-end proposal process easier. That's what Proposify does. Love it. <clears throat> and can I ask, for, for, the, your, for your subscribers who use that, what are you finding um, the impact in their close rate? Or is there one? Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so different across so many different companies. They all have different close rates. I know what we do find anecdotally is that customers will often say that they get comments from their clients on how impressive their proposal was, which they never got before. They never had a lead say like, wow, your proposal was awesome and I love the tool that you used. So we sort of, everything we do is around trying to help customers to increase their close rates. And we know that if, you, if you're a lead signs online, there's already a 60% chance that they're going to close it compared to if they, you know, if you made them basically uh, print and sign something off, you know, offline and fax it or take a picture. Um, the online signatures alone help close it, but even things like interactive pricing, people are often, uh, often able to get a higher value project because they offered options in their proposal and their client was able to kind of click around and interact with the pricing and see kind of what package they wanted. And so we have like SaaS companies that will say, our actual average deal size went up significantly since using it. Wow. Yeah. Well, I really love your software because, and I've, I've recommended it to some of my clients because, you know, proposals, they can take a lot of time. And one of the things that I'm, I see happen is that these CEOs get so overwhelmed with work that they actually can't get the proposal out fast enough. And then they're losing some business to their competitors because they were able to get to it faster. Yeah, we, we hear those stories all the time too. One of our customers had said um, that they were up against VaynerMedia, Gary Vaynerchuk's agency, on a proposal, which would kind of it's kind of like a David and Goliath situation. But uh, they were able to get the proposal out in 20 minutes when the lead called, and VaynerMedia wanted like two weeks or something to do it, so they just picked them for the project because they were like, "Well, you guys have got us a proposal faster." So they can, we can now say, if you use Proposify, you'll beat VaynerMedia every time. Guaranteed. Every time. Um, well that's a great story and and it's definitely a pain point that i've heard over and over again for um, companies that use proposals to do you know the high high ticket high-end work Um, it's a pain point that i see over and over again and um i'm i I have over the years helped them develop these more fine-tuned processes so that they can delegate them and they can have um 
them get out in a fraction of the time, but your tool actually just supports it happening that much faster. So um, I love that. And um, and it looks good too, as the designer in me, the, my, the past designer in me likes that as well. Are you a past designer? I never knew yes. that. Yes. Yeah, I used to have a little design company myself with web design and branding. And um, yeah, I love design. I don't do it myself anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I'm just poking around, but... Um, but you appreciate it. Like I, I'm in the same boat. I used to be a designer, but I, I don't think I am anymore. Well, I would look at, you know, that the, the, you guys put out a book about, was it agency, was it an agency success book that had yeah, a full scale agency? Yeah. Full scale agency. Yeah. And I read, I read over that book. It's on my bookshelf up there. You might even be able to oh, see wow. um, the, the blue spine. And oh, yeah. it was awesome. definitely, it is definitely designed like a designer had, had taken a lot of care and attention to it. So I can appreciate that. We, we know how to at least hire good designers, even if I don't. If, even if I can't do it anymore, at least I can, I can know what good looks like, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So uh, anyway, so let's go back to that question that I had. So for um, how did you actually get into this um, business, Proposify? It's, re- it's kind of a long, uh, it was a long journey. It's not actually that long a story, but 2006, which was before I even started, uh, before I even went freelance, I remember Basecamp had just come out like maybe a year or two before and, and agencies were starting to use the like Basecamp Classic as their project management tool. And like software as a service was still kind of new then. The idea of like not downloading software and installing it on your computer, but actually just going to a website, signing up, putting your credit card in, paying a monthly fee. Um, that was like kind of a new concept. And, um, and I love Basecamp. I was really inspired by it. So I remember as a junior designer working at agencies, how they would always put me on proposals and I have to go and find CDs with the case study work that we had done. Uh, Cause there was no Dropbox back then. Sound like an old timer. And uh, you know, I'd find that it was just a chaotic mess. I'd be getting emailed word docs from account managers and then I'd have to lay it out in InDesign and then we present it to the client. And I was like, wouldn't it be really cool in my say in my head if there was like base camp, but for proposals. That would be really cool. And I basically just kind of mocked up a, a quick like idea just for fun in my basement. And I literally sat on it. Well, not literally because it didn't exist. Uh, I didn't literally sit on it, but I, I shelved it away um, for years. And then every now and then I would talk to people like Kevin, who I worked with, and I would say, I'd say, hey, I've got this idea for proposal software. There wasn't really much out there at the time. Um, and it wasn't until years later we were running an agency and we were failing at it and and going like why don't we get into building products and so then we tried out all these ideas that didn't work and then finally we're like let's just dust off this proposal idea and you know slap some prototype together and see if people like it and it turned out that that got the most positive overwhelming response everybody we showed it to even though the product wasn't great then they at least knew the pain that we were trying to solve and they're like i hate proposals if you guys can build anything that will make that easier you know, take my money. And so that's kind of, that gave us the indication that, okay, we need to keep going with this, get out of the agency business and see if we can um, make a go of Proposify. I love it. So then um, how long did it take you to get, well, when did you start it then? What year was it that you started? So we got like, we got pretty serious about it. I'd say in 2012, we launched our 20, uh, we launched like kind of version one, uh, minimum viable product, you know, prototype in 2013. And then over a year, we 
tweaked and refined it and, and then kind of relaunched it in 2014. And that was the time when we actually sold off the agency, raised um, a bit of outside funding for Proposify, and then just the three of us, me, Kevin, and Jonathan. Jonathan is the uh, CTO who built the thing. And the three of us kind of went off to the races in 2014. Okay, great. So earlier on... <clears throat> Before we pushed recording, we were talking about your people and how they've grown, you've grown um, your team considerably. So now you're in this place where um, culture is a very important thing and, and you've moved away from where you can be the one managing everyone and now you have other managers. So how have you found that transition to be with getting everyone um, aligned with the vision, moving forward and, you know, um, you've been promoting managers, people who weren't managers before and now they're managers. So tell me a little bit about that journey and what are some of the things that you've been learning? Yeah, you know, the more your company grows, the more um, the, the more this becomes a problem and I think it only continues becoming a problem. And even though you're creating processes and systems, they, they break eventually and um, the problem keeps scaling along with the business essentially. Any, anybody I've talked to, I've talked to, David Cancel, who um, is the CEO of a, a tool called Drift, which is, you know, they've got hundreds of employees. Um, Jeff Lawson, who runs Twilio, which is like thousands of people. They all basically say the same thing, which is just people, communications, that's the number one challenge, and everything breaks at some point, and you've got to rebuild it every time. So, I mean, on a much smaller scale, that's what, uh, you know, that's the journey that I've been on, which tends to occupy the most of my time. I don't do a lot of product stuff anymore. I don't do other than marketing, like being on podcasts like this or creating my own content. I don't really do a lot of marketing. Um, it's really just coming up with, you know, who are the people on your team that are leading the departments and then giving them the tools and the systems and the processes to actually create their own and, and hire their own managers and lead them effectively. The hardest thing is that you've got to execute through other people. That's the hardest thing when you when you promote somebody to a manager and they've never done it before. They usually struggle because they're so used to being the doer and the executor and they're quite good at it. But they they get people on their team and now they don't understand how to execute through somebody else. They just think, oh, it's faster if I do it, so I'll just do it. And then the other person doesn't learn and then the manager gets overworked and the team feels that they don't trust them. So that's one of the biggest hurdles that we try to get through with, with managers is getting them to understand how to execute through others. So what have you found to be the most effective in helping a manager move from the doer role to now the uh, orchestrator of the do through? So it tends to, I wish that there was a good way to, to basically teach them that lesson without them having to stumble and fail first, but usually they have to stumble and fail first. You know, they have to, they have to overwork themselves, um, you know, pull their hair out. And then eventually when they go like, Oh, I'm so busy. Then you kind of have to go, see, this is why you need to do that. I am working on like an internal kind of um, management course to basically try to give like a, a very um, consistent way of like, here's how we manage the Proposify way. I actually learned this from reading um, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, um, which is a great book that people should check out if they want to know more about that whole, like how do you coach other people and give them feedback and, and without being, you know, being a jerk. 
it, it was a really good management book. And she actually taught the management course at Apple. And that was literally what the management course was called, Managing at Apple. So that was sort of the, um, the inspiration behind that. And then I want to take a lot of the principles from Radical Candor. Um, other books like The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey is really good. It's got a weird name. But um, it's, it's, it helped one of our managers kind of realize why he was having trouble because he was trying to do the job of a lot of his employees as opposed to you know, trusting them to, to do it without them. Yeah, I love that. That's great advice. And, you know, one of the tools that we have, we have um, used for our clients, and it's on our website too, is this called this rapid delegation script, where um, it, it's a pretty simple process for how to actually delegate out the work. But as you pointed out, it's not just about the process for delegating out the work. It's about the mindset, the mindset of it, like it might be faster for me to do this right now, but you are removing this now, the, now the, the ability for this person to learn this and you're overloading yourself in the, in the, the process as you stack up more and more of these things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing that's helpful on long, along those lines is we like to break, we, we like to tell people, okay, think about everything you do on a day, like almost take like a, a journal, and write down everything you do for a week, right? Now put those into one of four groups, like $10 tasks would be admin tasks, data entry, booking a, you know, booking something in your calendar. And then there's like the actual work part, which we call hundred dollar tasks. That's writing the code, making the sales calls, whatever, whatever action you would call just doing the work, executing. Then you move that up into management, which would be, you know, $500 tasks, right? Uh, doing a one-on-one, -on -one, creating, working on a, a, optimizing a system, doing a performance review, recruiting, anything that's management work. And then $5,000 tasks would be like strategy, like coming up with a strategy for the year or for the quarter and, and you know, really high level thinking, which tends to kind of fall more into like the CEO and C-levels. But just knowing kind of what bucket are you playing in mostly, right? If you're doing a lot of admin tasks, even if you're letting your, your teammates do the work, you're doing admin tasks like data entry because you're like, well, I'm just, I'm making their lives easier so they don't have to do it. But if you're, if you as the manager are living in $10 tasks, most of the time, it means you're probably missing the $500 tasks. You're probably not working as much on one-on-ones, performance reviews, coaching, which are probably going to have a bigger impact than just trying to save a couple hours of your team's time. I love that. You're that, that um, and then do you do you recommend them doing this in like on a piece of paper or a spreadsheet? Do you guys have like a template that you use for this? That's a fantastic idea. No, I don't. I have no okay. system for this. Well, by the way, as you're saying this, I'm like, this is a perfect system, and we're going to be building this system. We have something like this, but um, you have inputted some some really clear distinctions that helps you break it into the buckets. So once we create it, I'm going to send it over to you. But um, awesome. can't wait. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So we call this a time inventory sheet, mm. and oh. um, we, how we also have seen this helpful is with um, CEOs before they're they're even ready to hire that next manager. Is that they have all this work on their plate now? How do I even? I need to even put together a job description. I don't even know what this person is going to going to do. So doing a time inventory for a couple of weeks actually helps you break those things down. And I love that you actually said break them down into different buckets. So now um, they're sorting it as they go. And then that job description basically writes itself because you now know what that person needs to do. It's awesome. Love it. Yeah. So, um, all right, Kyle, you, you also, I, did, I failed to mention the book that you, um, that you released recently. When was, when did you release this book? Uh, it was at the end of January this year. 
Well, congratulations on that. It's called Free Trials and Tribulations. So <laughs> did I get that right? Yeah, you did. Yeah. So, so tell me about that book and why, why did you write that book? Um, you know, over the years, I've been interviewed, I guess, about uh, aspects of my startup journey. So, you know, we kind of more talked about the business side of things. Um, there's also kind of a lot of, there's a, a personal story in there that's a little bit unique about kind of my upbringing and um, being raised in a cult and leaving it. And, and that's sort of a lot of just personal uh, trauma that happened while trying to get Proposify off the ground. And I found when I've delved into those stories with people, they tend to uh, uh, find it quite interesting or, or inspiring or whatever, you know, um, they seem to, to, it seems to resonate with people. So I had wanted to write a book for a long time, just as a kind of a personal challenge in a, in a personal, um, side project and struggling to think what to write about it. I basically decided to write a personal memoir combined with a business book. So it's kind of like the personal startup journey and all the personal, um, events that happened and then combine that with the business lessons that I learned along. Love it. Well, um, and as and as I was looking through that, I could I could see that you've gone through quite a quite a few uh, trials and tribulations, as you yeah. would call it. And how have you found that that has impacted your success? Um, you know, the thing is, I think most entrepreneurs go through. Like, I don't think I've had it significantly better or worse than than the average entrepreneur. I think most except in rare occasions, most entrepreneurs are used to, you know, dealing with you know, the fallout that comes with running your own business. A lot of that bleeds into your personal life. Some people get divorced because of, you know, the, the stress of running a business and the financial fallout that happens when you fail. Um, you know, other people deal with um, deaths in the family. You know, there's all kinds of things. Usually it's the financial side that most people, you know, find a hard time is until they get successful doing it. Um, there's a long period of, of like making no money or just losing a ton of it that, that most people find hard. So I guess I try to write it as a form of therapy for myself and also maybe for others to just realize, okay, you're not alone. Everybody looks to others like they're killing it because everybody acts like they're killing it. But really most people are dying like on the inside. And so this is just kind of like a, you're not alone, uh, hopefully cathartic read for most people and not all doom and gloom. So do you think that entrepreneurs are successful because that we go through that those kinds of challenges? I think it's kind of like a process of evolution, you know, like the reason why the species that exist today didn't die off, you know, the reason that they exist is because they didn't die off because the ones that died off, we don't know about They're They're just fossils now. Right. I think in, I think it's kind of a little bit of that survival of the fittest is that most people can't, you know, eat, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, eat garbage for 10 years. And most of them will just give up and just find a job, right? So if you actually have had some level of success, usually it's because you were the type that refuses to give up even when you're, you put your house up as collateral and uh, your, your bank account's in the negatives and all your employees quit and your customers are pissed off. The only ones that make it are the ones that, are, um, that have that kind of wherewithal to actually not give up. Mm. So really the, what I'm hearing is that the correlation is just like that determination and never giving up. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Having, that, having a big enough vision that you can write out when it's pretty rough and it really sucks and you might want to quit. Well, that's the thing. It's like everybody thinks, everybody gets into entrepreneurship, I think, for the freedom. And then there's also that expectation that 
you can make more money as a result, which is true if it works. But the thing is, it has to not work pretty much for, you know, sometimes years, sometimes like for me, I don't think I don't, I wouldn't have viewed the business as really sick. I wouldn't have viewed it as like, I'm, I'm overall happy with it. I'm never happy with it, but I'm pretty happy with it. Took about 10 years. You know what I mean? And every, uh, every step along the way was always just hitting a milestone and then going, okay, that's great. But what's next? Like never really celebrating for too long. Mm, never really celebrating for too long. All right. Well, Kyle, it's been such a great, um, you've been such a great guest. We've, I really appreciate having you on here. Do you have any last thoughts for hands off CEO listeners? Check out hands off CEO, check out proposify. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if people want to read, read the book, Free Trials and Tribulations, uh, subtitle, How to Build a Business While Getting Punched in the Mouth, uh, it is on Amazon. And if people want to hit me up, um, they can email me if they have a question or want to you know, tell me I'm an idiot, whatever, kyle at proposify.com. Kyle at proposify.com, you said? Yeah, that's right. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. This is Mandy Ellison from Hands Off CEO signing off. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hands Off CEO with Mandy Ellison. If you want to work less and make more, make sure you subscribe and get a new episode every week and help spread the word by leaving a review.